0: welcome to the antioch podcast we're a justice-minded christian church in beautiful bend oregon seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things may the word of christ dwell in you fully and give you peace scripture reading today is from the book of matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 29 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven many will say to me on that day lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evil doers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law.
1: Well, if you don't know me, my name is Sean, one of the pastors on our team, and today is the fourth Sunday in this season of Harvest, and the fourth week in our vision series that we are calling The Whole Gospel, as you can see from our artwork back here. Uh, Each fall, we do a vision series that articulate something about who we are as a church, how we uh, express being God's kingdom here in Bend in central Oregon. And two falls ago, uh, we looked at our six practices. So if you see those icons around the room, they represent our six practices. We talked about why we have those, how we use those. Last fall, we did a series called The Work of the People. It was all about our liturgy, why we worship the way that we do when we gather. And if you've been around Antioch for a while why how we worship now might look different than 5 years ago. This year's vision series touches on an idea that's central to how we see our faith and it is this idea of the whole gospel of how we can be uh, how we can hold a both and faith in an either or world that Within our stream of Protestant Christianity, there are two main poles, and you could honestly label them a variety of different ways, but we've gone with uh, the evangelical view on one side, or what you could call uh, the more right perspective or the more fundamentalist view, and then on the other side is the mainline view, what you might call the left or more theologically liberal view, emphasis there on theological and not political. And as Pete began this series, uh, we talked about a number of these different categories where uh, these two ends of the spectrum, uh, we often put priority on one view or the other. And before we get too far, an important disclaimer here, we're speaking in broad brushes and generalizations here. There are certainly examples of folks on either perspective who may not entirely fit the bill. But what we've experienced as a pastoral staff, and whether you knew you were experiencing or not, churches tend to fall on one side of this equation or the other. If we look at our handy-dandy chart, examining some of these theological issues, uh, we can see this idea illustrated. I'm not going to go into all of these things. We're going to be covering these over the next uh, month and a half or so until we get to Advent and the new year in the church calendar. But Pete kicked off the series talking about how those in the evangelical camp tend to focus on the gospel about Jesus, while those in the mainline camp tend to focus on the gospel of Jesus. Last week, Rick talked about this spectrum as it relates to Scripture. While those more on the right focus on the divine authority of Scripture, in theological terms you might use the word inerrant, those on the left focus more on the human element of the words of Scripture. And what we saw last week and over the course of these few weeks is the animating idea behind this series is that... We believe that we can be a both-and church rather than choosing to be on one side of these equations. As the chart shows, we want to be a community that witnesses to the gospel of Jesus and about Jesus, that believes in the unique role that humans played in Scripture and that God inspired Scripture. Because we believe that when you take this perspective, when you live in the middle of that Venn diagram in the Mandorla, that this is a more well-rounded faith. It's a bigger faith, a a faith that embraces both mystery and certainty. It's a faith that recognizes that paradoxes are central to the life of faith. I mean, this was something that Jesus talked about all the time. He would take these two contradictory ideas. He would say that to be first, you have to be last, right? To find your life, you must lose it. At certain points, Jesus says that the way is hard or that the road is narrow, but he also says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Paul talks about how we are justified by faith, but also that we are not justified by faith alone. Just like life, faith isn't always separated into these tidy boxes of black and white. We have to live in the middle. And I like how 19th century Christian philosopher George Hegel puts it. He says, truth is found neither in the thesis nor the antithesis, but in the synthesis, Yes, that is how he spells George. That's not a typo. Just don't want my reputation slandered. And what Hegel says there is that it's, it's in this synthesis that we find the deepest truth. And that's what we're trying to dive into this fall in this series. And one final caveat is this, that... We know for many of us, and most likely most of us who are in this room, we came to faith or experienced uh, maturation in our faith through the right-hand side of that chart. It's what we know best. It's what we've experienced, and we want to celebrate all of the beauty that comes from that. And we also have to recognize, as we seek to have a both-and-faith Most of us in this room need to learn more about the left hand side of that chart, the mainline perspective, in order to draw us towards the gold in our picture or draw us towards that synthesis. Now, many of you uh, know my family, my in laws, Mike and Harriet, are part of our uh, church community here. And we were having dinner earlier this week, and uh, they heard that I was preaching about this Sunday, so they said, You know, what? what is your topic? What are you preaching on this Sunday? And so I answered honestly. I said, I am preaching on the life and death of Christ. And their responses were like, that feels a bit broad. (laughs) Or like, you know, that's kind of the whole thing, isn't it? Like, it seems like you got a lot to cover there. Um, And the answer is yes, it kind of is the whole thing. But the topic or theme that we're discussing today, we're loosely calling focus and it's how the two camps on either end of the spectrum tend to focus either on the life of Christ or they focus on the death of Christ. In psychological terms this is known as splitting, focusing on one idea at the expense of avoiding the other. And I think one way to begin to illustrate this idea particularly for those who might have grown up in the church, is to think about some of the most popular uh, hymns or songs that you remember singing. So when you think of that list in your head, how many of those songs talk about the death of Christ, and how many of those talk about the life of Christ? It's a lot more about Jesus' death than how he lived, right? Jesus paid it all, the old rugged cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, how great thou art. Were you there? It was finished upon that cross we sang this morning. This is one of those things that when you've been in church for a long time, uh, it's a bit like the frog in the boiling water, Um, particularly as evangelicals, we just love talking about the blood of Jesus, okay? Uh, If you are newer to faith, you have someone in your life who is newer to faith, it's weird, right? You're like, why are they always talking about blood and death and the cross? It can be strange looking from the outside. Those of us who've been a part of it, we don't realize but I'll say there, are, there aren't many songs that we talk about that where we sing about Jesus' life, what He did, about his miracles, about his ministry, about uh, his commandments. For another example, we can talk about the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the few things that just about every Christian can agree on, but it says this about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So uh, as you see there, it jumps pretty quickly from Jesus' birth to his arrest, Uh, the greatest person to ever live, the Savior of the world. And in one short line, we jump again from his birth to his death. Maybe uh, Suffered is doing some heavy lifting there, describes some of his life. But where are the references to his miracles, anybody he healed, any of the teachings that he had, the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, any stories, parables that he told about the kingdom of God? when the early church leaders were getting together to articulate the important parts of the faith, which is what these creeds were established for, why did all of the things about the life of Jesus not make it into the creeds? He was born and then he died. That's what the Apostles' Creed says for us. How are we to know to live like Jesus if we cut out the stuff about his life and teachings? And for many of us who've been shaped and formed through communities on the evangelical portion of our chart, One thing that we have gotten pretty good is the importance of the cross and the death of Jesus. It's why we sing the songs we do. It's why we know the sinner's prayer. It's why that even though culture doesn't see it this way, we know that Easter and Good Friday is just as big a deal as Christmas. Then the death of Christ, that is where we see our need for a savior. That just as we prayed that prayer of confession this morning in recognition of our own failings, of how we've fallen short, We know that Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins, That the only sinless person took on our sin in order that we might be restored with the triune God. And that's the good news of our faith. It's found in the cross of Jesus. He doesn't just wipe away our sins. He carries them for us. And three days later, that as Jesus rises from the dead, he overcomes death and he overcomes that ailment of sin that's been endemic to our very human condition. In the cross, and Jesus' death, and then his resurrection, we see that sin is not insurmountable. Jesus rises to new life. He, He bears the scars of his earthly torture, but he overcomes the consequences of sin. And Paul makes this clear over and over in his letters, but he says that we are promised the same new life, that we can live in the midst of the illness of sin with the hope too that we can overcome it because Jesus overcame it. So the good news is that in the death and resurrection in Jesus, that God entered fully and completely into solidarity with us so that we can have solidarity with God in the risen Christ. What we see is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't hate the sin and love the sinner. He forgives the sin and transforms the sinner. That's what happens at the cross. That's what happens in the death of Christ. Again, on the whole, the evangelical perspective has done a pretty good job of really hammering this idea into it, that we need a Savior, that we can't do it on our own, that it is God who has done this work and there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation or to earn righteousness. And this is an important part of our faith. However, if we only focus on this part of our faith, we have missed the mark as well. Now, Pete is even more versed in evangelical circles than me. He's a third-generation Baptist pastor, so that's a lot of singing about the blood. And, uh, you know, I was bouncing ideas off of him, and he talked about how this focus on the death of Christ was really taken to the extreme in communities that he has been a part of. Maybe it was the same for some of you, that in the faith that he received, technically it was okay to skip from Jesus' birth to his death— so skip from Christmas to Easter, because his life didn't actually matter that much. He said some helpful things, but the most important thing in the faith that he received was that Jesus was perfect so he could be the spotless lamb and pay the penalty for our sins. The cross and resurrection were really all that mattered. And again, maybe you heard some version of this too, whether explicitly taught or not. But if we only focus on that idea that the death of Christ is the only thing that matters, again, we miss out on this bigger faith. So let's talk about the other side, the life of Christ. Uh, Pete talked about this a bit in his uh, opening one about the, discuss- the discussion of the gospel of Jesus versus the gospel about Jesus. But in the gospel of Jesus, we see the things that Jesus did in his roughly 33 years of life. And what's interesting about this is that if the death of Christ is marked by uh, what happens there at Easter, the life of Christ isn't actually marked by Christmas. Instead, to focus on the life of Christ, it's everything that happened uh, after the birth of Christ. It's between Christmas and Good Friday when when he went to the cross. It's the life that Jesus actually lived. It's not just his birth. Though it is important that he came into the world as fully human and fully God, but it is how he operated. It's how he lived. That if talking about the death of Christ focuses us on our need for a savior, then when we focus on the life of Christ, it emphasizes our need for a teacher as well, or a master. Now, this is not the same as saying that Jesus was only a moral teacher. Uh, C.S. Lewis very famously said, uh, an individual only has three options to decide who Jesus is, a lunatic, a liar, or a Lord. But this emphasizes the idea that if Jesus truly is Lord, his life has something to teach us. And the heartbeat of Jesus' life, ministry, and way of entering the world is uh, encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount. Our text today is in Matthew 7, and it comes from the last of the three chapters that comprise the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about some of the specifics in a moment, but I want to go to the end first. In verse 28, it says this. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The crowds were astonished at Jesus because he taught, he spoke, he lived differently than the other people that they had heard before. Most rabbis of the day needed to uh, gain credibility by appealing to their resume. When they would teach, they'd say, hey, I taught under this guy, or I learned under this guy, I I went to this school, I, I studied with this person, you know, this is my SAT score, right? They wanted to establish their credibility. But we hear Jesus say, here, he doesn't have to do any of those things, He doesn't reference other sources or scholars. He speaks to them as God himself. What's said on the Sermon on the Mount isn't remembered because Jesus was just a great preacher. It's remembered because he spoke as God himself, articulating the way, the truth, and the life, and a life that he was calling these folks to emulate. And the problem for many of us who've been shaped uh, more on the right side of that chart, again, this could be explicitly or implicitly, is that we've been taught to not take Jesus' words seriously, which is a weird thing to say. We we said last week that the evangelical perspective has a high emphasis on the divine authority of Scripture. So it's a weird thing to say that we don't take Jesus' words seriously, but I wonder if you've heard some of these interpretations about the teachings that happened in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One goes like this, you know, it's impossible to actually do the things that Jesus said. No one can actually live like that. Or maybe uh, Jesus was just showing us how we all need God's grace. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Or you know, He was illustrating what a perfect life looked like and how none of us can live up to that. None of us can attain what he is teaching. Or maybe this one. Uh, if we took Jesus seriously, people would walk all over us. That's no way to get ahead, let alone survive in a dangerous world. And this mindset has its roots in our emphasis or over-focus on the death of Christ. If we believe that the only important thing is that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, that he took all of our sins and how I live, doesn't matter in connection to that. We join in with this chorus that says we don't need to take Jesus' life and words, and teachings seriously. That we've been trying to avoid an overly legalist or an overly works-based theology. So you can't earn it, but because of that, we've been shaped by communities that actually don't take the life and teachings of Jesus seriously. We say that actually they just expose our need for a savior rather than seeing them as an invitation to life in Jesus' kingdom here and now. Here's another example for you. Russell Moore is the current editor of Christianity Today. Uh, Before that, he was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's a public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's got evangelical bona fides. Uh, He was interviewed on NPR this summer about what he thinks is an ongoing crisis in evangelical Christianity in America. And he tells a story about how he's had all sorts of pastors come up to him and tell them that when they preach about the Sermon on the Mount or these ideas like turning the other cheek, loving their enemies, that after the sermon, people come up to them after the service and ask, where did you get those liberal talking points? And when the pastor would respond with, I'm literally quoting Jesus, uh, the response wouldn't be, uh, oh, I'm sorry, or... Maybe an embarrassment about that, but the response would be doubling down. uh, And this is the quote from Russell Moore Well, that doesn't work anymore. That is weak. Whew, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus is like, whole thing, Sermon on the Mount. That doesn't work. That is weak. And this is, again, the life and the teachings of Jesus aren't emphasized in the same way as the death. Of Christ. And what's interesting is that Jesus actually gets very specific in this Sermon on the Mount about how we can emulate the life that he lived. This is not an exhaustive list, but he says don't speak poorly of others. Don't degrade the image of God in others by lusting after them sexually. Settle disagreements outside of court. Keep your marital commitments. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Lend without a return. Love and pray for those who don't reciprocate the same for you. Give to the underprivileged and do it discreetly. Same thing with fasting. Live without worrying. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Be a peacemaker. Offer mercy. Pray like this that God's kingdom would come. Don't have a judgmental spirit. These are just some of the things that Jesus says uh, before we get to our text today, which is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus uses two examples to say this Take me seriously. I mean what I'm saying here, really. I mean what I am saying about doing this. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus talks about this person in his second illustration as the wise man in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, frequently in Scripture, after hearing God's commands, uh, His people are given a choice. So, Jesus, again, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, He has described the way of His kingdom. And He concludes this sermon uh, with multiple calls to obedience. He talks about the narrow gates. He talks about those who would do his will. Here he challenges those who would hear to be like the wise man, to build your house on the rock. And basically, uh, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with what I like to call um, Nike theology. Just do it. Really, just do it. He didn't intend his sermon to be a beautiful ethical theory or a rigorous but unattainable idea to show how much we need him. The evidence is overwhelming that he expects us to do what he taught to live like he lived. First John two puts it like this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And again, the, the right side of our chart has done a really great job of, hey, we can't earn this. We can't earn our salvation. We can't earn righteousness. And I think for me, I just kind of grew up going to church on Christmas and Easter. And when I hear this idea of, oh, you got to keep the commands. you got to keep the commands. My f- perspective on what faith was was that it was a list of things that you mostly couldn't do. That was what faith in Jesus was. Uh, But when I got into high school, I made a new friend named Mike. And Mike was very strange. Um, Mike had long hair, and he sat in front of me in algebra. And he never dried his hair after taking a shower. And so my desk was always wet from Mike's hair first period every day when I was a freshman in high school. And uh, I got to know Mike more, and Mike was just radically different than anyone else that I'd ever met. The way he treated people, the way that people wanted to interact with him. And there was just this something infectious about him. And I would later find out that Mike was different because he lived out this life and love of Jesus. And in his example, just how he lived as a 15-year-old freshman at high school, what I began to realize is that faith in Jesus isn't about limiting my life or telling me what I can or cannot do, but that the life of Jesus is actually how we live life to the full. We see that as followers of Jesus, as we live life to the full, we're called to participate in actions that anticipate the way God's world will be. Where the left side of our chart gets in trouble is where the actions of Jesus or the life of Jesus gets separated from what he accomplished on the cross. The evangelical side of our chart has the tendency to want the king without the kingdom, The mainline side of our chart has a tendency to want the kingdom without the king. But we see it's not about doing certain things or living this life in a certain way in order to get right with God. It's about living out the way of Jesus to bring about God's kingdom because we know we've already been made right with God. So if we believe Hegel to be right, it's not about thesis or antithesis or left or right or mainline or evangelical. It's in the synthesis that we find truth how do we find the synthesis between the life and the death of Christ? How do we avoid leaning too far into either direction? Or how do we avoid just being in the mushy middle and not caring about either of them? What we see that we need is both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, which are just fancy theological terms for right thinking and right living. We know this from other areas of our lives, but our beliefs shape our practices, how we think about something uh, affects how we live it out. If we look at our chart and our commitment to living in the both and, we could say that right thinking plus right living is this Mandorla manifesto. Our beliefs and our actions, they must go together. They are intertwined. Now, for those of you who've been watching the new Star Wars show Ahsoka, I got an example for you, okay? We learned about this idea between the relationship of a teacher and a student, in Ahsoka and Sabine, and they said a relationship between a master and an apprentice is as challenging as it is meaningful. That the death of Christ is endlessly meaningful to so many things, but if the life of Christ doesn't challenge us to live differently, does it really matter? What do we really believe if we're not challenged to make our life look different because of it. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. That is how the revolution works. These two ideas don't need to be on opposite poles because the truth that emerges in the mandorla, the truth that emerges in the synthesis is this. It is only because of what was accomplished in the death of Christ that I have any hope of living out the life of Christ. Only because of what was accomplished in the death of Christ do I have any chance of living out the life of Christ. Because we have a savior who defeated sin, we can live like our teacher and our master. When we maintain this perspective, we dodge the misconceptions on both sides of the chart. On the right, we can move away from avoidance or escapism or not being challenged to live differently because of our faith. On the left, we move away from work-based righteousness or feeling as if we can change the world without God's help or do it all on our own. Spiritual formation guru Dallas Willard puts it more succinctly than I ever could, which I hate, but he says this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. And that is our hope as we seek to be a both and community In all of these areas on our chart, but especially today as we talk about the focus of the life and the death of Christ, that we would believe so deeply about what happened with the death of Christ that we would act as if it were true by emulating the life of Christ, that we would recognize that we both need a savior and a teacher, that the revolution would start with us. That as we live out of the death of Christ and into the life of Christ, we would do our part to help bring about God's kingdom today. That the security that we find in the death of Christ would lead us to live differently, even when it costs us something. That we wouldn't measure our choices by the ways of the world or how we could get ahead, but rather by how we can best live like Jesus in each and every moment. That every area of our lives would be different. Our relationships with each other, our choices at work, our parenting, our voting, our driving, how we think about violence, our relationship with the earth, whatever it is, you name it, would be different because we're living the life of Christ. And the world might say that we're weak, the world might say that we're outdated, that we're gonna get walked all over, that we aren't gonna get ahead or win. But in spite of those criticisms, we would know that Jesus told us when we choose to live in the light of the life of Christ, we are building on a firm foundation. That when the waters come, we will be secure. That as we let Jesus invade our lives, everything would be different because of the life that he'd lived and the death that he overcame for himself and for each one of us. So, Antioch family, may we remain committed to both the death of Christ and the life of Christ in our beliefs and in our practices and ultimately in our love. Amen.